all of these things are very powerful and can also be a very negative experience. You know, that saying marketers ruin everything. We don't want to be those marketers. That's Don Golsons, the VP of Growth at Mises Smart Thermostats. Don is a less is more kind of guy. With everything he does, he is strategically analyzing the amount of effort, payoff, and how it'll impact the consumer, and then searching for the perfect balance to lean into. That there was him talking about his SMS strategy, but he's also used that philosophy for his discounting as well. We were able to reduce our discount levels quite significantly. So if you reduce your discount by 25%, but the same amount of people buy, then you just grew your revenue by 25%. Don's attention to detail has paid off huge. And today he's going to teach us how he uses it across the tech stack and all of his marketing strategies. I'm Dan, CEO of the leading tech stack agency, Magal. Each week, I get to speak to executives and I find out the strategies and the tech stack they're using to drive revenue. Let's jump into my conversation with Don. Now, I love this, Misa. We we were very lucky to have the chance to work together uh, while you were a client of McGaw and Misa was a client of us, which is a ton of fun. So we had the great opportunity to work together. And I'm super excited about this interview because like, you really know the stack there, which is super good. But I guess like before we kind of get into that, can you tell us just a little bit like what Misa is? You said it's a smart thermostat, but I know it's not just that. Smart thermostat in general, people just think of like a Google Nest or maybe an Ecobee. And what people don't know is that for a lot of homes in North America, they don't work. And that's just really because of the setup of the home, the way it's wired. So 20 to 30% of North American homes can't have a Nest or an Ecobee. And so then they go to Google and they figure out what should I do instead. And so those systems are electric baseboard heaters, electric in-floor heating, Maybe like you've heard of many split heat pumps. So there's a lot of different types of HVAC systems out there. And with a lot of them, and Nest just won't work. And it's not, it's a technical issue, purely on the hardware side of things. So Misa built devices for those systems. And so we got started by really just piggybacking off the category that Nest and Ecobee have created together. And then we've kind of built our own name in the space. And we've shipped over half a million devices since we launched. I have a smart thermostat in my house, right? But I live in Florida, so no baseboards or anything like that. I think it's called a split system you guys have had set or something like that. I remember buying my smart thermostat and was super, super excited because I can control it from my iPhone. I'm going to assume it's the same thing with y'all. So like you can control it from your phone and all that. Yeah, that's right. So you can control um, your thermostat from your phone from anywhere. You can easily set a schedule. It has geofencing, so when you leave the house, it automatically turns down the heat, for example. And when you come back, it turns it back up, integrates with all the smart home devices. So it's really uh, very comparable to like Google Nest or an Ecobee. We actually have one cool thing that they don't have, which is we can show you exactly to the cent how much you spend on your heating. Yeah, so you've got a mobile app. It's connected with the actual hardware, which is not an easy fee to do anyways. Is it all D2C? Can I go to like a, a store and pick these up? Yeah, so we started off just purely D2C with our own Shopify website. Then we launched an Amazon about a year later. And then since then, we've expanded into retailers. We're in Best Buy, Home Depot, Costco. And we're also expanding into working with contractors and distributors. We're still the niche product. We're not the mass market product. So we need to be omni-channel to get some of that scale. You know, I know one of the things that I learned from uh, some of your team uh, when I had the luxury of working with them 
you actually were the professor of the founder, if I'm not mistaken. You have to tell me more. Seven years ago or so, I was teaching uh, in the engineering school at the local university here in Newfoundland, and I was teaching engineering entrepreneurship, which was the most fun course because it was last <laughs> year for engineers. A lot of them kind of took it on an easy course initially, but then my whole goal was just to convince them to consider entrepreneurship. And so it was an elective, so I only had people in there that actually wanted to be there, canceled half of the lectures and made it a group project because you can't really teach entrepreneurship. You just got to do it. That's the best way to learn it. And so I made people work on an actual project. And so one of the projects was initially for a solar panel design, but then they pivoted because of things they were learning in the market to a smart thermostat design. So that all happened during the course of me teaching that course. And then they ended up hiring me one year later. So they, they learned that in the course, came up with the idea, and then I make the assumption, went out and raised some money, and then we're like, we're going forward on this, and then brought you in. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> so I it was essentially it. all engineers, and I was the first real commercially focused hire. Now, when you say engineers, like in this school situation, was it all like electrical, mechanical? Was it all engineers, like computer science? or? Yeah, it was a, a mixture of all engineers. So there were mechanical, electrical, computer science, even ocean naval engineers were in the course. So it was a, the whole slew. You talked about the MISA has a mobile app and then you have the D2C function and like you have all these channels. But I'd be interested to try to just understand like naturally you have to grow the business. It's kind of helpful to understand like what are the primary goals or metrics that you're looking at in your role? The primary goal is, is just net revenue growth. And ideally in our business, net revenue growth because we also deal with a lot of returns. Not always because of a bad product or anything. It's just sometimes people don't know anything about their HVAC system and they buy the wrong product. So a return percentage can be definitely sometimes in double-digit percentages. So net revenue growth is most important. Then secondary to that is really just profitability. It's a hardware business. Um, It's not annual SaaS software where we get just recurring revenue in the door. So we have to grow profitably and contribution margin. And really just... That's the end result of managing our paid media spend. So it's really as much revenue growth as possible and then within the guardrails of profitability. Yeah, and you said paid media is part of that. So I mean, naturally, is that like the primary lever for y'all is paid media? Yeah, and organic search as well. So we we really uh, started off with a large organic and paid search motion as well, mostly because we had Google and Ecobee creating this category people finding out they can't have it and then going to search for a solution. The problem with that for us was if you only rely on search, you're not really in control of you know your sales. You're just trying to maximize whenever people are searching. If people stop searching, well, too bad. So that's why you know we've added in a lot of different channels as well. So we've been advertising on Meta, TikTok, working with influencers, YouTube, kind of trying to diversify as much as possible, even Amazon as well. Maybe I didn't hear it, but I felt like you didn't say AdWords on that as much. I heard Meta, TikTok, YouTube. Yeah, paid search, we definitely um, used a lot in the beginning. But then we were able to rank for it organically. And then really just tends to become filling Google's pockets instead of our own. So we, we still use it, but very in a targeted way so that for keywords where we're not ranking organically or where our competitors could swoop in. 
Yeah. So, I mean, naturally as a business, right, you care about net revenue, you care about profitability and things like that. I totally understand those things matter, but those are kind of like a lagging metric for you. Yeah. So I'm curious, like when you think about these channels, what are the leading indicators or even the moderate, like, I don't even, what the hell would you call the thing in the middle? The leading lagging? I don't know. What, what would we call that? I don't know. Because like ROAS is like a leading lagging. It's not the actual lagging metric, right? We've really played around with that over the years. And what tends to work well for us is add to carts. So we have our, our Shopify site. And generally, we've seen the correlation between ads and cart and purchases be pretty consistent. Obviously, we can try to game it. But when you're not trying to game it, it's a pretty good indicator of whether it's resonating with people enough so they're at least adding to cart. So that can be a leading metric. But then email signups is also very important for us. A lot of our revenue, I think it's about 30% comes from our email list. That's a good sign. It's intriguing, just the, the add to cart. So like you're running ads, add to cart's a leading metric on telling you whether it is being successful. Now, when you think about that from like paid search, naturally, it's a pretty like intent driven channel. But when you think about like meta or even a TikTok, you know, that's a very passive thing. So is add to cart still going to be one of the leading indicators that you're using to track there? It's definitely one of the factors in consideration, but we're also really looking at just overall traffic. And what we try to, when things are not as easy to track, we're not foolish. We're not trying to track everything we do to a dollar of revenue because it's just not really possible anymore. So what we do then is try to do geo lift tests. So we'll, we'll isolate a specific region for us. We'll run it there. We'll see, do we get a meaningful lift in traffic? And then I generally just try to make it a math problem. Like if we're spending this much on this media placement, like a great example is we did TV as a test in Quebec, which is a great market for us. And we did see a doubling of traffic. But if you then look at how much you spend for that doubling, you would need them all to convert for it to actually make sense within the realm of profitability. So then it becomes a question of, okay, can we triple the effectiveness of it or not? And is that within the realm of possibility? I love that. And that's awesome. Like geo lift test. So you're targeting a certain geo, doing something that maybe is not able to be tracked, then leveraging the traffic from that geo and then the conversions from that geo to be like, okay, well, this actually made sense or it did not. Yeah. And generally, we just want to get to a point where, okay, should we invest in another test or should we just walk away from it? It's not like, uh, okay, success or failure. It's more so should we invest more in learning more from this effort or not? Yeah. Interesting. Now, when we were doing a quick review, right, like we checked out your stack and, you know, using stackbuilder.com, right, we were really able to kind of understand what you had going on. And when you got Misa.com, which that's a Shopify site and you have everything built through Shopify to be able to process the traffic, I assume, right? Or is there anything like custom on top of Shopify? Yeah, we also use Contentful embedded in Shopify. Oh, Wow. It's a very unique setup. And our developers is it, kind of would you recommend it. it though? Like, would you say that you would do it again? Uh, no. <laughs> no. Okay. <laughs> no. We are planning currently an effort to get away from that in the next year because Shopify is changing a whole bunch of things. They're yeah. really changing a lot of things, especially with the checkout that will impact this. It's not really something I'd recommend, but we ended up here anyway. 
Yeah. I mean, I think everybody got all excited about the like whole headless CMS and everybody was like, I'm going to do it because it's cool. And we had like four or five clients of ours who did it, some using Contentful, some using some other ones. And we were like, okay, well, we don't advise this, but we'll go with you. And 50% of them are ripped it out. And some of them went back to like a regular WordPress site. Someone went back to regular Shopify. I guess like if you had to name like the one pain point that made that maybe more difficult, like is there one pain point that you're like, ah, this is what really got the Achilles heel on that one? The biggest pain point with it really is just when things change within Shopify, you have a whole bunch of tech debt that you didn't cause. <laughs> and so then you go, have to go solving. You know, usually you want tech debt as a, kind of a decision that you made. And then it's worth the shortcut for now. But when Shopify makes changes, like they're changing a whole bunch of things with how apps are used and scripts during checkout, which we rely on a lot. So it's going to force our hand. Really, and ideally, we want to address tech debt whenever we have bandwidth for it, not, for example, during Black Friday. Acquiring tech debt, in this case with Shopify making changes at terrible times, is annoying, but these aren't always avoidable. You can't really tell Shopify what to do, and luckily, they're giving companies a long time to be able to switch these things out. We'll get back to Don in a moment, but first, here are a couple tips on how you can prevent tech debt and reduce the potential negative impacts on your stack. First, you have to prioritize long-term goals over short-term fixes. Yeah, I get it. We all have short-term things we have to do, but try to stay focused on that long-term goal. Everybody's trying to grow their business, but growing is tough, especially when you need to rip out a tool and replace it. From time to time, I hear companies say, you know, I'm going to go buy HubSpot and then later I'll switch to Salesforce. That way, once we've grown, we actually have the right tools. And I always tell people, like, don't do that. It's going to cause a massive headache for you. And the last thing you want to do is manage that process when you're trying to grow. I'm actually going through this process right now. My company, UTM.io, go check it out. Cool company. Right now, we're actually ripping out Salesforce and ripping out Autopilot and replacing those with HubSpot Marketing Automation and HubSpot CRM. And let me tell you this, it is a bloodbath. It is so hard to rip out the heart of our actual company and replace it with a new one. Just managing the data migration is so difficult. So not something that you want to be doing. We have to do it because it's we're trying to grow the company and we need to switch the tools. So in your case, always opt for solutions that align with the long-term business goal rather than the quick fix or the immediate gains. Assess the potential trade-offs and implications for decisions. And particularly when facing tight deadlines or budgets, you got to make sure you you're thinking about the cons just as much as you're thinking about the pros. Now, the next tip would be don't choose the shiny object. Many of these cool new tools on the market are half-baked and full of hype sauce. When you are in the innovation phase, it seems super cool and they come with a lot of risk. And sometimes you don't see the risk because the tool is so cool. As an example, many people I know chose Webflow three or four years ago. They were all excited because it was all the jazz. And months after starting developing it, they realized they were in the worst spot ever and they should have just chosen WordPress. Now why? Well, Webflow was cool, but it was new and they could not do a lot with it. You couldn't even install JavaScript in certain places of the site. You couldn't have forms. You couldn't do all kinds of stuff. Second, the developers who actually work on the platform were extremely scarce and also very pricey. Now, WordPress, they were everywhere and they were very affordable and it made it a tough decision. And finally, everyone in the company, when they chose Webflow, had to learn the new tech and it slowed down the company's ability to actually use it and grow the company. And for what it's worth, I've heard the same story with people talking about Contentful, just like Dawn said. So make sure you're thinking about the ability to enable that tool and as well as how it's actually going to get used. All right, enough of me. Let's jump back to Dawn. 
So you have Shopify as your shopping cart. So when you're running all those paid ads, you're sending traffic to the website, you got Shopify picking that up. Contentful's like your headless CMS. It's making it so you can edit pages in essence. But you're then using Shopify to be able to track all the, I shouldn't say track, but process all that traffic. So I'm curious, like when you go back to like talking about adding to cart, of course you can track add to cart over to advertising platforms, which is fine and dandy. But you've got the issue with ITP tracking from Apple or things getting blocked. So I'm curious, like what tracking do you have built on top of all that that enables you to still be able to, to see those metrics? We've implemented, I guess I'll, I'll talk about all three because they all work together. So through Google Tag Manager, we collect data, first-party data with segment. And that's on our website and even any other touch point where we can collect the data. And then we send that data to Amplitude. There we can really just, it's so easy to build funnels, build segmentations, track cohorts over time. It turns what, in my mind, is basic add-to-card tracking natively through Shopify. It turns it into a power feature where we can really correlate it with types of users with specific regions and all very easily in just a matter of seconds. And then, so Google Tag Manager is set up on the client side of the website and then you are loading segment in Google Tag Manager. Now, I know for segment to be able to get all the data from Shopify because you can't have Google Tag Manager usually in the checkout flow. Like, I'm curious, how are you still getting maybe the purchase data over to segment? Yeah, so we did uh, need another integration for that, which is Little Data, which connects Shopify with Segment. So everything is sort of in one bucket or gathered in Segment. Interesting. It definitely makes sense. I know there's some weirdness in Shopify's changing this next year where like you can't have tracking scripts. You've now got to install an app or something to that effect. So definitely going to be a lot of different stuff there. I guess like when you think about the way that you're using Segment, right? Are you just using it as your data pipe? Essentially, yeah. So Amplitude seems like Google Tag Manager is just making it easy to track. Segment's making it as a data pipe to be able to distribute that data. And you had mentioned Segment sending all the data to Amplitude. So it sounds like Amplitude's really where you are doing most of your hands-on keyboard type work, looking at data, looking at reports. Yeah, totally. I spend a lot of time in Amplitude myself. Like I'm in it daily, whether it's our VP of Finance asking questions about <laughs> revenue growth or it's kind of in the weeds on like how is this Facebook ad campaign performing. It's all like amplitude where we do most of our analysis. I can only imagine being a D2C customer and you got all this traffic going to the website. A big part of your job, like the best way to, re- to improve your return on ad spend outside of optimizing your ads is to improve your funnel, right? So you've got to increase throughput through the funnel and easier. So I guess like, how are you, are you using Amplitude to optimize that funnel and things like that? Like, is that where you're really able to dig in? Yeah, it's super useful because everybody always knows the start point of your funnel and the end point, which is an order. And then there are a million different paths in between. Generally, what we just do is like, if there's a problem, and then we try to diagnose it. And really, Amplitude helps you just quickly go down that root cause analysis of, well, why is this metric down? Okay, let's look at this report. Why is that not looking great? Okay, let's look at this. Let's segment by new versus returning customers. And it just helps you pinpoint some of the issues right away. When we worked with McGon, as some of your analysts figured out, hey, if people go to this page, half of them drop off on the next page, even though it's sort of the same content. So what if we just remove that page? Which we then did, and we doubled our conversion rate, which was great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that will drive down that uh, cost per acquisition a lot when you can double a conversion rate. Whenever we talk to like a D2C or an e-commerce customer, and I'm like, listen, what's your like CAC? 
and the $340. And it's like, okay, well, that's a lot of CAC that you have. Like, how are you optimizing the funnel? Like, we're not doing anything. And it's like, well, how are you going to improve that metric if you don't even do any testing in the funnel? So it's great to see that you guys take that seriously and have done a lot. You all naturally saw an increase in conversions. You saw a reduction in the amount you had to spend per customer. And it seems like Amplitude was something that was really, really helpful to do that. And, you know, I'm curious, like in your business, we see a lot of people use discounting or anything like that to try to like drive conversions. Black Friday is coming up. Are you using any of that as part of your tactic? Absolutely. You know, I'll even tell you kind of about 2021, which was not a great year for us. Definitely at the end of the year, there were some tough board meetings that I was in because we had spent a bunch of money. We had discounted a bunch, but the growth wasn't quite in line with what that needed to be. So at the end of the day, then you're really just cutting into profitability and even cash runway. So I think it was right after that we implemented and really leveled up our tech stack. And one of the most important things you can do then is just figure out what not to spend and where you can cut, where it's actually not going to cause any drop in revenue. So we did a bunch of that. We were able to reduce our discount levels quite significantly. So if you reduce your discount by 25%, but the same amount of people buy, then you just grew your revenue by 25%. So we were really focused then on reducing discounting, only discounting when it's necessary. And so doing things like discount ladders where we'll try to get you at 10% off. And if you're not buying, maybe you'll get the 20% off discount. If you're still not buying, then maybe you'll get the 30% discount. So you got to earn your way to get the most discount. Yeah. And then it sounds like that was before you even had Amplitude at that time. How were you tracking all of that stuff and then processing the numbers? Like, How did you know that like, okay, great, we discounted too much, revenue didn't go up? Yeah. So before Amplitude, it was export orders into uh, Excel sheets. And Ooh, that's a fun one. Do a lot of Excel ninja stuff to create your own cohorts and analysis and segmentation. And now it's a lot easier. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I. you know, the most embarrassing thing is that I am not an Excel ninja. And I think it's the reason why I was like an early adopter so much of like, marketing analytics because it's like I can do all this stuff without having to make a pivot table. But yeah, no, that manual labor definitely can be a pain. You now are not running as many discounts and it seems like you've been able to get a lot smarter and faster at most of those things. You naturally are spending all this money to get a customer. They then have to buy the product, but the show isn't over then because if they can't install it or if they can't connect the mobile app, it could just be a return, which is a humongous problem. So I'm curious to understand like how you've managed that problem and how you've used the stack or analytics to improve those experiences. This is a, a core part of our customer experience because you get a, a smart thermostat, then you have to install it. And about 80% of our customer base does a DIY install. They're not getting a professional in the door. And then you have to connect it to your Wi-Fi network, which, you know, it's 2023, but... Wi-Fi networks are still not the most stable anywhere in <laughs> wherever you are. That can be very tricky. So like, just imagine from the customer point of view, you just bought this exciting new tech, then you have to wire it up, then you have to connect it to your, your Wi-Fi network and it doesn't work. So it's a terrible experience. Then if you have to connect, try connecting again, maybe it doesn't work again. And we've had instances where people were failing to get their thermostat connected even after trying 10 times, which wow. is a horrible customer experience. And so now, because we implemented all of the, the tracking in our product as well, we can see uh, how many times it takes on average 
to try before you get your thermostat online because they're using the app, which is already connected to the internet via the phone. And so where we used to rely on people getting mad and writing into our support team, already being extremely frustrated, now we can spot certain things or issues with maybe new software releases and things like that in Amplitude because we have the dashboard set up where we're tracking how many times does it take to get a thermostat connected. And so if that starts spiking, we know, okay, we have an issue. We can tell our support team, hey, people probably will start writing in, calling you with this issue, be prepared for it. We can send them an email notification because we know who it is, for example. There's a whole bunch of things where we can shorten the length of frustration of a specific customer. Um, so that's a key part of our customer experience or Amplitude, well, the whole stack, really, Segway and Amplitude and, and then customer.io, which we use for email and uh, SMS and now in-app messages as well. You have a user having a hard time. One, you can measure that. But now, because you have Segment sending the data to Amplitude, but you also have Segment sending the data to customer.io, you can actually do something now that you have that insight. Yeah, and now, so now we can send them even an in-app message and say, hey, you've connected the, uh, or tried to connect this device for oh, more than two times. Here's some key troubleshooting steps you can do or talk to your support team right away. Yeah. So you're sending emails. Are you going to move that to like an in-app message soon now that customer.io has that? or Yeah. So we're already sending in-app messages now with uh, customer.io as well. Oh, I love it. And then you'd also mentioned you're doing SMS through customer.io. Yeah. Uh, but we're not, we don't use SMS a whole lot necessarily. We use it for some like discounting. We don't want to abuse things. Like we also have the ability to send push notifications, for example, through our app which we also implemented through customer.io. But we have a very strong view uh, within our team that you know all of these things are, are very powerful and can also be a very negative experience. You know, that saying marketers ruin everything. We don't want to be those marketers. We did one test where we sent to get more sales, obviously. Uh, we sent a push notification that there was a promo coming up and then we used an in-app message to give more details about the promo. So we tried to get the push to get more people to open the app so that we get more viewers on the actual discount. But it resulted in some one-star reviews. So that's the cost of uh, being a marketer and ruining everything. (laughs) There's a saying that goes around a lot and it says, no one ever went out of business for sending too many emails. I say it all the time. And it's a famous quote, I think, that came from Facebook. For a long time, though, that may have been true, but it's kind of changed, right? It's not exactly the same anymore. People are annoyed by the constant influx of ads they get every single day. And you have to think about people as a human and not as a marketer for a moment, right? Do you really want your inbox flooded every day with mass amounts of junk email from one of your actual vendors? No. Your email inbox is already crazy. And if you think about what Dawn was talking about when it came to SMS marketing, well, you know, SMS gets open 98% of the time and is a super, super reactive channel. People open the messages like three minutes after they get. You know, you've got to understand with great power comes great responsibility. So you have to make sure that you don't bombard your users. More junk from people is not going to mean they're going to open your messages. It's only going to ruin your metrics. So before you plan your SMS strategy or your push notification strategy, your email strategy, I don't care if you're sending out smoke signals, make sure that the marketing is effective and you practice restraint. So you want to make sure that you're giving people good messages based upon the experience they have or that they're not having, but you don't want to overwhelm them because ultimately they're just going to get lost in the sea of content. 
Now, speaking of mobile experiences, let's get back to Don because he had some cool stuff to talk about. You have a really unique model in the fact of like you have this mobile app experience where you have your current customers, somebody who's already bought the product. They're not paying for the app. The app's free, but they paid for the product. So there's kind of this like continual app experience improvement that you have to deliver upon, even though maybe they're not paying for the app just because they paid for the thing. But if your app sucks, they will return the product. It's a unique selling proposition that like, we always got to make sure our app isn't bad. And when uh, we have a good app and people have a good experience, they will tell other people, right? Because it's it can definitely be a game changer for people when they're trying to save and we're to build. And we do see a lot of word of mouth as well. It's definitely one of those those key things with it. The other thing that we do have is we we partner with some utilities on demand response programs, which sounds scary to people initially, but really we we do it in a very transparent way where we're not just giving utilities control of your thermostat, but you can opt into a demand response program, which means whatever your electricity grid needs it the most and it's strained the most, the utility could call an event which says, hey, let's turn the heat down for two degrees. And then generally you get compensated by the utility for that. So it prevents things like we saw last year in Texas where there was like a three to four day complete blackout. That's when the electricity grid gets super strained. So we partner with utilities for that. We get recurring revenue from that from the utility and the homeowner gets an incentive from the utility as well. So that's a key part of our business model as well. Our whole tech stack is helping with that as well. Like we can measure how many people are enrolling. What is the enrollment rate per region, for example? We can use in-app messages to show people to enroll at the right time because you don't want to do that right away, right? You don't want to set up your thermostat and immediately start giving up control maybe to utility like once a year. Yeah, it really helps to send the right message at the right time in the right format. Yeah, yeah, which is super, super helpful. You now have all these different channels, right? So you have visibility into the world using segments doing all the tracking, Amplitude's doing all the visibility in regards to like insight generation. However, with customer.io and even advertising channels, I know Segment integrates in with all the advertising channels, even Amplitude does and customer.io does. But customer.io is giving you push, in-app messages, SMS, email. How are you choosing what message to send on what channel at what time? And then like, how are you measuring that was the right channel? I wish I had a more scientific answer for you and something that was like more clear cut, but it's really just an art. So we do map out our customer journey. So we have that fully mapped out and drawn out. Then very often you can just use common sense because we're all consumers as well. Like we get product, we all get SMS, spam and things like that. So very often that weeds out most of the bad decisions. But then after that, we just do tests. So one test we did recently was comparing the opt-in rate for a demand response program, email versus in-app message. And so we track that full funnel as well, because it's not just the initial click that counts, it's actually enrolling in the full program. We definitely saw uh, an increase with in-app messages. It's really about picking the right test, I would say, and not trying to test everything. Mm. How much testing are you commonly doing? Like, is testing a big part of the practice? It is seasonally. So being a, a heating-only product, Really what it comes down to is most of our testing will happen somewhere between September and March. Because outside of that, our order volume just declines significantly. People don't use the app because it's really just heating only. So it's only at winter that it's used. 
And that means that we don't get enough data to get anything close to statistically significant, which means in, in my mind, at least you're just wasting time trying to do rigorous A-B testing if you can't get close to any statistical significance. Yeah, no, it makes sense. And I guess like I find a balance, right? Because like conversion rate optimization and testing, there's a huge science bit about it. And there's a lot of people out there that are like these extreme purists with the data. And I would say that I'm a little bit less about being a purist on it because I'm an entrepreneur and I think qualitative data and quantitative data needs to be mixed to kind of make a gut decision in regards to what's the best outcome. You do have testing that is done because we have a scientific proof that this is statistically significant and you have a winner here. However, you also have, you know, we ran this test and it was not statistically significant, but because we have all the data, we can look at device type, we can look at geo, we can look at all this other data, and we can start to try to create inference off of the other data and have other learnings that would help inform other tests or other hypotheses. So I'm curious, like, how do you find that balance? What are you using to measure your tests? Is it always an amplitude? Is there other things you're using to measure the tests? And how do you do that stuff? To kind of the first part, the most important thing in my mind to realize is that if you don't have a statistically significant winner, you also don't have a statistically significant loser, which means it's not going to be like a whole lot worse than what you're currently doing. (laughs) What you're really (laughs) finding out is that it's within the same realm of performance if you at least have enough data and enough time. We generally still try to use just common sense paired with that, and we look at a whole bunch of metrics, and obviously revenue is the main goal. But if average order value seems to go up or if return rates seem to go down and things are relatively equal, then maybe it'd actually be a good implementation to actually just pull the trigger and do it. And so we track all of that in Amplitude. We set up dashboards or in, in the form of tables even so that we can see all the metrics that matter for us when we do a test. So you even track your returns in Amplitude? Yeah, so we use Returnly, which then again just syncs back up with the specific order and the user ID. And so we know when somebody has returned the product. Yeah, that's awesome. The lag on that is quite a significant. That's like a real lagging indicator. So that <laughs> yeah. has to be very intentional. We've talked a lot about a lot of different tools that are in your stack, right? So we covered all of the advertising platforms. We covered all the uh, different building blocks. I'm curious, you had mentioned uh, little data as what's powering segments. So you're having server-side and client-side tracking. On the client side of the website, like, are there any other technologies that are helping you understand like the qualitative stuff? We talked a lot about the event activity, the quantitative. But what about like qualitative ways you're tracking users? We don't really use things like heat maps or recordings all that much. Uh, but what we do use quite a bit from the qualitative side is just surveys. I think people generally underestimate how powerful a survey can be. You know, you can just put a mini survey up on, on screen on a cart page, for example, and ask what's preventing you from checking out. And you're not going to get groundbreaking responses necessarily. Nobody's going to write a full thesis on it. But you're going to get enough data points. And after maybe a dozen, you'll start to see a trend that you can then investigate further. And so we also do some post-purchase surveys with a crazy high completion rate, to be honest. I never thought it would be as high. We did like 25%. So it helps us figure out more qualitative things like how'd you hear about us and all of those things. And then you're using that to improve the hypothesis you have for your testing and how you can change the marketing strategy. Yeah. And uh, the other thing that we do very regularly is actually just talking to customers. So we'll use our email list, we'll create an incentive, 
and we'll create a Calibi link and people will just book a meeting with us. There's a surprising amount of people to do it. Yeah, uh, We actually have to throttle how many people we email because <laughs> it's happened to me where I was naive and thought, oh, nobody will want to talk to me. And next week I was only talking to customers and I was wow. <laughs> entirely at the end of the week. It was great, but also very tiring. Yeah, no, I could totally understand. Like my job is to do meetings. And by the time I'm going to get done with the day, I'm like, I don't want to talk to anybody. I can totally understand the feeling. So super cool what y'all are doing at Misa. Like I love the stack. Don't get me wrong. I'm very lucky because I helped you build your stack and help get it all going. So very, very grateful for the opportunity to be able to support you there and as well as do some cool things with the tools. That's all from Don. But before you check out, I want you to take some recaps of the biggest takeaways that we had today. And I'll do this as quick as I can. First, tech debt, make sure you're doing it strategically. Building your stack for the long term is going to pay off huge when it comes down to actually growing the business. Nobody wants to rip out a tool when you're actually trying to grow the business. And please stay away from the hype sauce, okay? There's a lot of it in the market. Second, it's really awesome that Don is doing everything in his power to leverage Amplitude's advanced analytics. I don't know about you, but GA4 sucks, and it does not give you nearly as many powers as universal analytics. And that is why it's so important to have a good analytics product like Amplitude. And there's other vendors out there. I'm not going to mention them by name because Amplitude is one of my favorites. But the reporting that you're going to get from Amplitude is going to help you massively grow your business. So if you have a great understanding of your data and your customers, you can actually do something about it. Last, don't abuse your power. Don has been extremely careful about the way his team embraces SMS, push notifications, and email. If you start to annoy people, they're going to start to ignore you. And even worse, they might give you crappy reviews. I see this happen a lot on the App Store. Now, SMS marketing can be crazy effective, but if you overdo it, you might actually push your users away. So thanks for listening today. I enjoyed today's episode. I hope you did too. Make sure you subscribe and don't miss the next one. This is Dan, and I'll catch you next time.